Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In our home, during the Advent season, we like to read the prayers from the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer. Uh, there's a, a prayer for every week of Advent, and th this being the second week of Advent, I'm going to read here the, and pray, in my own words, this, this prayer for the second week of Advent. Join with me in a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the second week in our Advent series. It's the second week of Advent. And our text for this morning is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. Last week, uh, Ben talked with us about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Um, and now we'll be in 3, and next week we'll be in 4. And we'll just move through this passage, uh, verse 2 through 7, together. We hear a lot about joy this time of year. We sang about it this morning, the familiar words of the song, uh, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Uh, there's the familiar words of, of other Christmas hymns. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Uh, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. There's the familiar angelic proclamation. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, from Luke 2. Uh, even our secular culture tries to capitalize on the, the, the joy aesthetic. Megan brought home a paper bag from Panera Bread this week that said, give more joy with Panera Rewards. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but where does true joy come from? What are the characteristics of true joy? Well, we're going to examine this morning what Isaiah 9.3 has to say about it. I want to say a couple words at the beginning here about Isaiah. 
It's a prophetic book. The prophetic books are much like great works of art. They can be very difficult to understand if you read straight through them. And the proper interpretation of any prophetic book requires a great deal of Bible knowledge. It's, an, it's a work of art. It's full of metaphor and colorful language and allusion to other scriptures. It assumes a very intimate knowledge of Israel's law and history. And the proper interpretation also requires a robust knowledge of the New Testament where we can see these prophecies fulfilled. I like to think of a, a book of prophecy something like a great work of art in a museum. Anyone who is a casual visitor to the museum, such as myself, could walk through a museum and appreciate some of the art. Some of it's beautiful, some of it's very interesting, uh, and you could walk through and you can appreciate it. Much like you could read through the book of Isaiah, uh, and you can certainly appreciate some beauty. You'll, you'll occasionally stumble across a familiar verse, like a couple of the verses in this passage, uh, and there'll be uh, verses that are familiar to you, and they are beautiful and poetic. But a scholar, an art scholar, maybe a uh, uh, someone like a Melanie Gilbert who actually knows what some of this, this art is all about and maybe a little bit more of the, the detail behind the history of the piece, those individuals can walk through a museum and have a totally different experience. Um, they understand the art uh, much more clearly than the casual visitor. Uh, this is something like the Book of Prophecy. You can walk through uh, a prophecy and, and understand some of it, but don't be discouraged if you can't understand all of it because the books of prophecy are very difficult books to understand. Um, like I said, they, re they require a great deal of Bible knowledge. That's not to discourage you, but to say, read through it, get what you can, and read through it again, and read through it again, and read through it with cross-references, and, and look up the cross-references, and try to understand the Old Testament allusions, and try to understand the New Testament fulfillments. And the more you read a book of prophecy, and the more you study a book of prophecy, the more you'll be able to appreciate it. One of the difficulties with, with understanding books of prophecy is understanding when the prophet is speaking. Uh, what I mean is a proper interpretation requires a proper determination of the timeline. That can be difficult. Uh, verb tenses are relative not to when the prophet actually spoke or wrote, but to when the prophecy is to be fulfilled. Uh, sometimes we have to imagine that the prophet is transported to another location, another time, and the prophet's words are relative to that time frame. So for example, in verse two, it says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The words have seen are in a tense that implies action that started in the past and continues to the present. But what Isaiah is talking about here did not start in the past when he first spoke the words. Now, in this particular case, we have a key that unlocks our understanding, and the key is Matthew chapter four, verses 12 through 16, like Ben told us last week. And I'll just read that again. Matthew 4, 12 says, For when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So we have here from Matthew the key. Matthew is telling us that this prophecy is fulfilled in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And as an aside, we can see the great detail with which these prophecies are fulfilled. Here the prophecy says, 
Uh, it refers to the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Well, the city of Nazareth is in the land of the area of Zebulun. The city of Capernaum is in the region of Naphtali. And so when Jesus, Matthew, looking at Jesus' ministry, when he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, he sees in this fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that the people walking in darkness in those areas of Galilee saw a great light. And so we understand from Matthew that the proper time frame for understanding the fulfillment of this prophecy is Jesus' earthly ministry. And so when Isaiah says that the people have seen a great light, we can read his words as though he is observing Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We could say a lot more about this, but I want to move to verse 3. Verse 3 says, <clears throat> Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. I want to talk about the source of gospel joy. And if you're following along in your bulletin, that's the first blank, the source of gospel joy. And the second blank is right here. That joy is not found in increase. Translations and commentators differ on what verse 9-3 should say. Some have it read, Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Others would have it read, Thou hast multiplied the nation and to him increased the joy. I've chosen to follow the first reading, which I hope to demonstrate best fits the context of Isaiah's prophecy. Um, I'd be happy to talk with you about why I made that decision, but I don't think it would be fruitful for everyone right now. This is a short verse. It is full of interpretive complications. Uh, John Calvin said of Isaiah 9.3, it is somewhat obscure, both in itself and on account of the diversity of interpretations. So what is the interpretation of this text then? At a high level, Isaiah 9.3 simply means that while, while the Jewish nation during Jesus' earthly ministry had increased in size and influence, only those upon whom the light of Christ shone rejoiced at his advent. While the Jewish nation during Jesus' earthly ministry had increased in size and influence, only those upon whom the light of Christ shone rejoiced at his advent. The nation. There's a reference to the nation. That's our first interpretive difficulty. Commentators are split on what this means, but I think it's quite simple. It refers to the Jewish nation. In the context of Isaiah's prophecy, really from verse 17 of chapter 7 uh, through a good bit of chapter 9, he is, the, the prophet Isaiah is addressing the Jewish nation. Uh, then we see the words, thou have, hast multiplied. You've multiplied, you've increased. And I believe this refers to the growth of the nation in the time of Christ. Remember, the time, as we saw, the time of fulfillment is the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. The nation had partially, not completely, partially returned from exile and had populated Judea and Galilee. This was a time of relative wealth and influence for the nation. Paul, in Romans 11, describes the state of the nation, and he explains his reasoning for why, uh, well, divinely inspired reasoning for why the nation rejected its Messiah. And in verse 9, he identifies their relative wealth and influence as one of the reasons they rejected Messiah. He says, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their table be made a snare. The Jewish nation's wealth and comfort was one of the things that prevented them from recognizing Messiah. I'm reminded of 
Agur's prayer in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. This is a prayer in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. It might not be a bad one to pray each of us on our own. It says, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? That's the impulse of riches, to deny the Lord because you are full. Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. So there's a pitfall on either side, and the, the inspired writer here prays that he not, be neither rich nor poor. The next words, and not increased the joy. While the Jewish nation was multiplied and increased in the time of Christ, the joy was not. The nation rejected Christ. Despite the nation's material growth, its joy was not increased because it largely rejected its Messiah. Uh, we read a portion of John chapter 1 last week uh, when Ben was, was leading our study. And I want to read another portion of John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1 verse 11 says this. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Again, Paul in Romans 11, 1 through 5, he says this. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, Paul recognized an objection to his teaching about God's promises. He recognized someone could object to his teaching by saying, well, you say God's promises are sure, but the nation rejected its Messiah. So has God rejected his people? He responds to this objection. He says, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. And then he gives an example from the Old Testament when Elijah felt like he was the only one remaining in the nation who sought after God. He says this, says, why ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But then Paul answers this objection by responding with the response that God gave to Elijah. He says, But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Even in Elijah's day, when most of the nation had gone after Baal, God had reserved a remnant within the nation. And that's what God did in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and the time of the apostles. While the nation largely rejected Christ, there was a remnant that was faithful and that did embrace him as Messiah. And this is the way in which Paul explains the nation's rejection of Messiah. The next point is joy is found in the light of Christ. The next words in our passage in Isaiah 9 says, Thou hast multiplied the nation, not increased the joy. They joy before thee, according to the joy in harvest. Or they rejoice before thee, according to the joy in harvest. Who is the they that are rejoicing, if not the nation? Well, I believe that the they, in verse 3, refers not to the nation, which rejected Christ, but to the people of verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. See, it was those upon whom the light of Christ shone that rejoiced, the faithful remnant, not the nation. Again, John 1, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The small remnant of the nation that received him rejoiced greatly. But what can we learn from this verse today? Well, we can learn primarily that it is only when we see the light of Christ that we experience the gospel joy of Advent. We don't experience joy simply by decorating our homes. You can create a warm, festive environment. You can't create joy. We don't create joy simply by exchanging gifts. That brings brief pleasure, brief happiness, but not lasting joy. Uh, you can't create joy by buying Panera Bread pastries. Maybe a full stomach, but not joy. Statistics show 22% of American consumers will acquire debt trying to create some joy this Christmas with our purchases. But we only experience the true joy of Advent, the true joy of Christmas, when we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, like those people on the shores of Galilee. And when we have this light, Christ redeems all those other things for us. See, a simple meal that before brought temporary pleasure can be a banquet of joy. Matthew Henry has a great quote where he says, contentment, joy, and thankfulness turn any meal into a religious feast. A simple gift that before brought fleeting happiness can be a means of sharing the joy that you have of having received the best gift of all and the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ. And regardless of how simple the feast, Christ's presence in the feast sanctifies it. If Christ is in it, a $4.99 rotisserie chicken from Costco is a banquet. But if he's not, then the best cuts of beef and finest bottles of wine would be a famine. Remember, as our society elevates elaborate and expensive celebrations, that his first bed was straw, his first visitors shepherds, his disciples uneducated commoners, his dining companions tax collectors and sinners, his transportation a donkey, and his crown thorns. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 52, verse 3, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It won't be in material increase that we experience the gospel joy of Advent, but in the light of Christ. Having considered the source of gospel joy, I want to move on and consider the characteristics of gospel joy. And that's the Roman numeral two blank, the characteristics of gospel joy. Isaiah gives us two metaphors, harvest and victory in battle. He says, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What can these metaphors teach us about gospel joy? First, observe this. Gospel joy comes after sorrow. Both of these metaphors describe 
joy that comes after some period of hardship or sorrow. The harvest only comes after the blood, sweat, and tears of planting and sowing. Psalm 126, 5 through 6, which is a great comforting psalm in any Christian endeavor, but Psalm 126, 5 through 6 says this, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Planting is hard work, but the reward at harvest is joy. Similarly, a battle is a terrible thing, but to the victor go the spoils, and all who fought share in the rewards of victory. Whether harvest or victory, joy comes after suffering. Also, both of these metaphors describe a joy that is not contained in the present, but that touches both past and future. Consider harvest. The joy of harvest reaches into the past and validates the blood, sweat, and tears of plowing and sowing. During the harvest, the joy manifests itself as those who have labored share together in the fruits of their labor at the harvest feast. And those sitting at a full harvest table can look into the dark gray winter ahead with comfort that there will be food. Similarly, the joy of victory in battle looks backward and justifies the sacrifice of those who died and were wounded. The joy manifests itself in the relief and celebration of the victors as they divide the spoil among themselves. And the victors can look into the future at the promise of peace and security because the enemy has been vanquished. How is this sort of joy realized in those who witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry, in those who had been formerly in darkness but saw a great light? Well, they walked for hundreds of years in the darkness of tradition. The religious leaders laid on them heavy burdens. They had placed the life-giving word of God in a prison, inaccessible by rules and regulations that were not of God. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came and he cut away the dead tradition to expose the light of the scriptures. The teachers of Israel didn't know the most basic principles about the word of God or the spirit of God, but Jesus came to them as the man to whom God gave the spirit without measure. Those in Galilee who had walked in darkness and then saw and received Jesus saw quite literally the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And how is this principle of joy after suffering true in the life of every believer? Well, every believer who realizes and sees the depths of sin cannot help but feel joy at the realization that Christ offers the only path to be brought into communion with God. The more we meditate on and recognize the depths of our own sin, the greater our joy. Remember in Luke chapter 7, the woman who had many sins and recognized her many sins, who came to Jesus and anointed his feet, weeping. Jesus was at table with Pharisees who were outwardly very righteous people, but they did not recognize the depths of their own sin. What did Jesus say? He says, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. To whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. This doesn't mean that we need to have sinned greatly in order to love Christ greatly. It means that we've all sinned greatly. And it's only those who recognize 
the depth of their own sin who can love greatly. See, the Pharisees had had many sins as well, but they didn't recognize them. And so they didn't love greatly. But as we meditate on our own sin and the darkness that we formerly walked in, we will be able to experience greater joy. You know, joy isn't something that you can conjure up. But you can place yourself in the situation where the scriptures teach us that joy appears. And one of the ways that the scripture teaches us we experience joy is when we see the light after having seen the darkness. So joy comes after sorrow. This next point is gospel joy is inward. Inward. What does this passage teach us about Advent joy? It says it can't be faked. Verse 3 says, They joy before thee. At this time of year, we are expected to be joyful. There are social functions that we go to with family and with friends. And some of us feel more joy than others this time of year. Some of us, uh, this is a, a difficult time of year. But we're expected to be joyful. And anyone can put on a mask of outward festivity and wear false joy as a costume for a little while anyway. But remember that the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. You cannot rejoice, as the passage says, before thee, before God. You cannot rejoice before God unless you are truly rejoicing. Because God sees what no one else does. He sees your heart. And we can only have this inward joy when we've seen the light. Again, it's they who walked in darkness and saw the light who rejoiced. Well, what are some practical ways we can cultivate this inward joy? Now, again, we can't make ourselves feel joy, but we can put ourselves in the situations where the Bible says that the Bible says result in joy. Again, like we talked about before, we can't forget the darkness. We must not forget that the darkness preceded the light. And so we should get down on our knees and confess our sins to God. The old man is still with us. Though, Lord willing, he grows weaker day by day, when he shows up, we would, should fall before the Lord, confess our sins, and we know that he's faithful and just to forgive us. Uh, another way to cultivate inward joy is to pray and thank God for the blessings of salvation and the work of Christ. One good way to do this is to pick a passage of Scripture and pray through it and talk to God about your thoughts that come to your mind as you're praying through this passage. You pick uh, a familiar passage, maybe Ephesians 2 or maybe Isaiah 53, and as you read through it, talk to God about what comes to mind as you read it. Another way to keep the former darkness before us and to experience the joy of relief from that former darkness is in the Lord's Supper. In just a few minutes, we're going to approach the Lord's Supper. It is a remembrance of what Christ did for us. In this supper, we are confronted with the shed blood and broken body of the only begotten Son of God. When we remember his death, let's not remember a sanitized version of it. The scriptures do not describe what happened to our Lord as the idealistic image that we sometimes see portrayed. His blood did not run down simply from the nails in his hands and his feet, but from the thorns pressed into his brow and from the open wounds across his back where he'd been scourged with the nightmarish Roman lash. And blood ran from his face that was beaten so badly by the Roman soldiers that it was almost unrecognizable. Not unrecognizable as Jesus, but unrecognizable as human. 
Isaiah 52 says, So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And this, this means that he was so badly beaten that his face was almost unrecognizable as a human face. So when we see the emblems of shed blood and broken body, let's not take this lightly. This is an unspeakable gift of God's, uh, and your sin made it necessary. And having looked there at the depth of your sin, receive the symbols of the broken body and shed blood offered from the hand of the Savior. It is the Lord's Supper to all who will trust in his all-sufficient sacrifice. The inward joy is foundational. If you don't have inward joy before God, no amount of outward festivity will hold true joy for you. A man once said, He who has not Christmas in his heart will never find it under a tree. He who has not Christmas in his heart will never find it under a tree. Uh, next point is gospel joy is outward. Not only is it inward joy, but it's outward joy. And the outward flows from the inward. In an agrarian or farming society, uh, harvest leads to feasting. That's what happens. Similarly, the joy of victory in battle leads to rejoicing and dividing the spoils. These are celebratory and communal activities because a joyful heart leads to a joyful hearth. A joyful heart leads to a joyful hearth. I don't know of a better time of year to demonstrate inward joy. And here are three practical ways among many. One is sing. The Bible frequently connects singing and rejoicing. It's a great way to outwardly show your inward joy. Uh, consider Psalm 95.1. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Consider incorporating singing into your traditions this year. Sing as a family. Sing with guests. Buy a couple of hymnals and use them. Uh, in addition to singing, feasting. <clears throat> Isaiah 9.3 talks about the joy of harvest. It's a feast. It is a good and natural thing for our joy to express itself <clears throat> in generosity and communal gathering. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 has a, a great summary of feasting. It says, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of our Lord is your strength. Uh, may we be like the early church in Acts 2.46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Use this holiday season as an opportunity to open up your home and exercise hospitality to family, friends, and neighbors. Hospitality does not need to be elaborate. It just needs to happen. Host a dinner. Host a Christmas party. Invite people over for hot cocoa and Christmas carols. In addition to singing and feasting, proclaiming is another way to show outwardly your inward joy. When one in darkness has seen the light, he cannot help but rejoice with others who have similarly seen the light and share light with those still in darkness. Like the apostles in Acts 4.20, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So be prepared to have conversations centered around Christ with coworkers who might accidentally mention something about the true purpose of Christmas. In conclusion, the source of gospel joy is the light of Christ, not a material increase. It's not in materialism. While these material things cannot bring joy by themselves, they can if Christ is in them. So we should enjoy these things. But 
Let's not seek for joy in them. Joy has certain characteristics, joy that we talk about in the Bible. It's, it's not just untainted happiness in the present. It's not just fleeting pleasure. We have control over those things. We can generate happiness in ourselves. We can generate pleasure, but we can't generate joy. Joy retains a little of the sorrow of what came before, though it's now made sensible in the light of Christ. Joy has a sense of longing and anticipation and hope for what is yet to come. It appears first inwardly, but where it is truly inward, it cannot help but find outward expression. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah and uh, this verse that we were able to study together. Father, I pray that this year, this Christmas season, we would experience true gospel joy. Father, if there is anyone here who formerly was walking in darkness, I pray that today would be the day that they would see the light of Christ. Father, I pray that you would take the light that we have here and spread it in the spheres in which we walk throughout the week, our occupations, people we interact with in educational settings or work. Uh, I pray that you would help us to show the light to people who are currently walking in darkness. Father, I pray that our joy would be true before you. Father, I pray that you would help us to uh, meditate on what you've saved us from and experience the true joy of the gospel and that we'd be able to share that with other people, help the joy to find outward expression and help us to be thinking about ways that we can do that this Christmas season. In Christ's name I pray, amen.